Are there any questions about the material of last week? Now, this morning we're going to begin our, our class on the book of Revelation. The first thing we do when we examine a, a grammar work of literature, one of the first things to do, of course, is to determine the literary form of it, since there are all sorts of literary forms. Some years ago, when most of you were not born, there was a very popular American spoof writer I say most of you weren't born, but I'm suspecting, Nancy, you remember Art Buckwald? Yeah. You got Okay. You were young, but... Uh, Art Buckwald wrote a spoof column. It was usually a spoof, anyway. It was always funny. But everybody understood that was his form. So nobody took it seriously. We all laughed. I, re my, I guess my favorite of the ones where he is trying to explain, the whole thing is, is to explain to a Frenchman why we have Thanksgiving. That one is classic. If you, if, you, if you Google it, you'll find it. Art Buckwald's Thanksgiving column. Okay. Because the French have no idea what this is all about. Le jour de grâce. And he talks about a man by the name, of course, Miles Standish. Miles Standish is very difficult to get into French. Okay. Miles, of course, can only be translated as kilometre. <laughs> and Standish, so it comes out, this character's name is Kilometre de Boutiche. And he talks about Les Paul Rouge, okay. the Redskins, Les Paul Rouge, okay. and Les Pellerins, Pilgrims. And he goes on this way, and how they get together and they, and they eat a whole bunch of dand, <laughs> uh, as bird of India, Les Wasso dand, uh, which of course is a, a turkey. Um, Anyway, Art Buckwald, he was always writing funny things. They were, they were screaming. I always looked forward to them. In fact, the only thing, when, back when we got a newspaper, the only things I read were the funny papers and Art Buckwald's column. Everything else was depressing. But he wrote a column on how the city of New York was mad at the Russians and we're refusing to pick up the garbage from the Russian delegation to the United Nations. <laughs> and he has, this, he has this description of the garbage piling up in front of the Russian delegation at the United Nations. It's, it was extremely funny. Okay. One of the shortest books in the world is a complete anthology of Russian humor. 
the Russians, somebody over, somebody. <laughs> well, anyway, Pravda. Pravda. What does Pravda mean? Truth. That's what I thought it did. I thought Pravda, truth. <laughs> I thought that's what it meant. Yeah. Pravda ran this in Moscow as a serious news article. <laughs> okay. So the Russians were all up in arms and ready to declare war because we wouldn't pick up their garbage. <laughs> See, when you pick up something to read it, it's very important. Very Im- okay. I <laughs> after, this, after this thing this morning, of the sparks coming out of that uh, blog, I... What year was that? Roughly. 1970? Yeah, it was back when tensions were were high. They're not anymore, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm just... Now, when you open open a, a book, it's kind of important to know... What is the form? What is the genre of the book? Okay. We're going to do the same thing for the book of Revelation. What sort of book is it? It describes itself as a book of prophecy. Now, I suppose to the average reader of the book of Revelation, it's obvious that Revelation is a prophetic book. Just about everybody knows that. The problem is, they don't know what they don't know what that means. They don't know what prophecy is, and that that is the problem. The Book of Revelation calls itself prophecy. Already in verse three of the first chapter, blessed is he who reads, and those who hear, the words of this prophecy. Again, four times in the final chapter, the book uses the word prophecy to describe itself. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anybody adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anybody takes away the words of the book of, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part in the book of life. It just, the book just calls itself a book of prophecy. Now, there are modern scholars who say, no, it's not prophecy, it's apocalyptic. I'm sorry, but that's simply, that is simply a literary development of prophecy. Not all the prophets or the prophetic books read alike. And there are different classifications uh, of books. We certainly how much how much resemblance is there, for example, say say the book of Jonah, which is listed in the prophetic books. What is how much what is that like? Say we're comparing it with uh, Ezekiel. In addition, references to the prophecies prophets rather are called seven times seven times in the book. 
Now, then why am I making such a point of insisting that the book of Revelation be treated as a prophecy? Why am I urging the obvious? I do so in order to establish the principles and procedures by which we interpret the book. If the book of Revelation is truly a prophetic work, then we should go about it understanding it very much the way we go about understanding the other biblical prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos. That is to say, we begin by placing the book of Revelation as far as possible in its own historical context. We want to determine, to ascertain, how the book was understood by its first readers. There's where we always start with any book of the Bible. It should be presumed as a first principle of reading the prophetic books that those books were understood by those who read them. There's no way, say, around the year 100, when somebody got in church and, and read, a, read some of the book of Revelation, the whole congregation just stood there thinking to themselves, I don't know what the heck this means. I hope somebody will come along somebody can understand what this means. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of dumb. I'm much more ready to believe that they said that about Romans. Which is very challenging. Okay. The understanding of prophecy must always begin with the understanding that its first readers and hearers had. That's the context. Otherwise, we have no control over what we're going to find in the sacred text. Sometime I will have to dis distinguish between Torah and prophecy. It's very clear to me how they're distinguished, but I would take me off base this morning, I, and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought of putting that in here except that I talk about Torah in the uh, in the sermons this morning. Let's take the earliest of the literary prophets. Now, if you recall, we took this we took the book of Amos two years ago. Remember that, guys? I'm looking for a light of recognition here. Hannah, you remember that? Yes, thank you. I select Amos deliberately because he was the Bible's first literary prophet, just as St. John the Seer was the last. Now, when we say that Amos was the Bible's original literary prophet, we mean he was the first biblical prophet whose extended oracles were consigned to writing in a single book. This is what distinguishes Amos from earlier prophets like Nathan and Elijah. In this respect, Amos serves as a point of transition in the history of the sacred canon. The writing down and preservation of prophetic utterances was arguably the most distinctive contribution of 8th century Israel. The very act of transcribing God's oracles 
manifested a different perspective, a new awareness that the prophetic message was possessed of a permanent relevance beyond the circumstances of its original time and place. Everybody hear me on that? That's a new thing. You write it down because you want to say future generations must know this, not just for right now. Nobody bothered to write down extensive oracles from Elijah. It doesn't mean he didn't give any. Nobody wrote down extensive oracles from Nathan. In fact, Nathan seems never to have spoken to the people at all. He was he was a he was a private prophet. I mean, he was prophet for David. That's it. He prophesied to David. The prophecies of Nathan in the 10th century and those of Elijah in the 9th century were spoken into the air, and they disappeared like any other spoken words. The narratives of the books of Samuel and Kings preserve only scraps of what those prophets said. Someone, however, in the 8th century BC, perhaps Amos himself, believed that his prophetic message had about it a timeless significance. In the course of criticizing the economic, political, social, and religious where am I? And the religious situation of his age, Amos was perceived to be making important comments applicable to the people of all other ages. For example, those eight brief oracles that open the book of Amos for the three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not relent. Somebody heard that and said, man, this is really good stuff. I want my grandkids to know this. So write it down. There arose the conviction that the words of the prophet were worth recording for future generations. Now that's a big step. The origin of the book of Amos lay in that conviction. Amos marked the transition from prophecy to prophetic literature. Now there's the book of Revelation places itself in that tradition. The words of the prophecy of this book. At the same time, it is important to observe that the book of Amos does not begin on the note of its timelessness. The future validity of the words of Amos were not based on some abstract integrity perceived to be characteristic of his thought. His words were not preserved because the contemporaries perceived a high and compelling philosophical coherence to his message. His message was profoundly validated to his contemporaries, rather, by the plain fact that what he predicted came to pass, thus proving that he was right. Because remember, what does Amos predict is going to happen? Samaria is going to be destroyed. He's telling the Samaritans, get your act together, or maybe don't get your act together because it's probably already too late. 
the invader is going to come in and take you all in captivity. Twenty years later, when that happened, they said, oh, Amos was on to something. What he had to say is worth remembering. In denouncing the sins of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II, <clears throat> Amos had foretold the impending downfall of Samaria. And this downfall, which took place in 722 B.C., demonstrated the words of Amos were to be taken seriously. He had not only prophesied that event, he had also analyzed the social and cultural and religious causes that brought it about, and that's important. He reads history. He traces effect to cause in history. That's, that's the big thing about prophecy. The prophet, the prophet is a, he's a critical historian. He looks at what's happening, sees where things are going, why they're going that way, and he may prophesy what's going to happen. So the secret of, the secret of foresight is insight. God gives these men the special insight into things, and they record Somebody records what they say. So when history demonstrated that Amos was accurate in his assessment of the outcome, his contemporaries understood him to be accurate in his assessment of the cause. When his historical foresight was shown to be correct, then one had to conclude that his historical insight was correct. So his, his foresight invalidated Pardon me, his foresight validated his insight. Am <coughs> I with me so far? The book of Amos commences then with an explicit reference to his time frame. We really need to know that. The book of Amos begins with an explicit reference to his time frame. Those ancient editors who placed the book of Amos in the Bible were very careful to tell us that he prophesied and this is verse 1. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So it was during the time of the reign of Uzziah and Jeroboam II. Now this priceless historical information about Amos stands at the beginning of the text in order to send us to the books of Kings. What was the context of Amos? He's already told you when he prophesied. That, that era is already described in the books of Kings. So we will understand the context in which the prophet spoke to his contemporaries in the 8th century before Christ. That is to say, Amos's words of prophecy are not timeless except by being timely. I made that up myself. I thought that was quite... You see why I'm a senior editor of Touchstone. <laughs> These words are valid for all of history because their interpretive connection with an individual part of history. You see, the important, the important principle for understanding the Bible at all is this one verse. The word was made flesh. And to Altamogus. What word? Any of God's words. They're made flesh in Dwaltamogus. 
Thus, the Bible itself prohibits us from reading Amos as a work of theoretical abstraction. His own book obliges us to read him first in the context of his own place and time. This, there was a time when this was, was understood, I think. I remember when I was a small child, uh, we did not study the Bible in school when we first started. We studied biblical history. And I remember that we had, I took a course from first grade on called Biblical History. We had a little book here which gave us maybe, maybe second grade, but it was very early, a book of biblical history. I, I can remember that book very well because I still have this picture in my mind of Joshua and Caleb carrying this, these, uh, these grapes into the Holy Land on this big kings of grapes. Uh, you see that in our children's Bibles. Now, learn the history first in order to understand it. There was a time when that was understood. We, we studied the Bible from an historical perspective. And I'm talking about I was really very, very little. And I got very turned on by this. Uh, and it stayed turned on ever since. Now, I, I didn't do very well because I did flunk first grade, as you all know. But I did well the second time through it. Which is why I'm an editor of Touchstone. Hang on a minute. So the opening of the book of Amos explicitly sends us to the books of Kings. Moreover, the very structure of the sacred canon is instructive on this point. Like this, let me just throw out, and I throw this question out to any of you except, except Joseph the Tender. <laughs> Because he will recognize it's a trick question. <laughs> In the Hebrew Bible, what is the first of the prophetic books listed? See, after I said that, everybody's afraid. They think they know, but I've already suggested it's a trick question. Yes, sir. Deuteronomy. No, Deuteronomy is the is the last book of the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You, have, you, have, you actually have prophecies in the, in, the, in the Torah, don't you? You have prophecies already back, say, in, in Genesis 3. You got a prophecy. Uh, the seed will, will crush your head and you will lie and wait for his heel. That's a prophecy. So you have prophecy. But good, 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 good point, though. What's the first book of, 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 what's the first prophetic book in the Hebrew Bible? Okay, Joseph, tell us. Joshua. Joshua. Joshua, did you already know that? You're just afraid to say it. Okay. In the Hebrew Bible, Joshua is the first of the prophetic books. Not in the Greek Bible, but in the in the in the Hebrew Bible, Joshua is the first of the prophetic books. You say, well, that's a book of history, precisely. Precisely. Joshua. Judges, the two books, what are called the two books of Samuel, the two books of Kings. Um, those are always Hari's book to, to name. That's why in the Septuagint, they're simply called the four books of the kingdoms. And then the, the, other, the other, what we call prophetic books, 
such as Ezra, Nehemiah. In the Hebrew Bible, these are listed. Well, not Ezra and Nehemiah. No, they're, they're later. They're, they're, they're in the KJV. But books that we think of as historical books are in the Hebrew Bible listed as prophetic books. Okay, now, why is that? The books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings form that part of the Hebrew Bible known as the former prophets. They're not, that's F-O-R-M. I know I, I, spell, I, I pronounce F-O-R-M and F-A-R-M the same way. I can't help it. That's how really, we have it in Kentucky. You know. Uh, so when, when I first started teaching scripture, I would talk about forms geschichte. They thought there was going to be a course on agriculture. <laughs> this designation, former prophets, indicates that those historical books are read first because they provide the necessary context for reading the next section of the canon, namely, latter prophets. The latter prophets, of course, include, in 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 order, uh, in in the order of the at least the order established by the by the, the manuscripts of the Vulgate, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. In the in the Septuagint, the Twelve are listed first. Thus, when we think of the Bible, what we think of as the Bible's prophetic books are rendered inseparable from the context of the historical books. So the biblical prophets are not allowed to become philosophers. They're not abstracted in their historical conditions. In this respect, it's worth calling attention to the parallel case with the Torah the Chumash, the five-fifths of the law. The literary structure of the Pentateuch places the giving of God's law within an elaborate and detailed historical context. What God said to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai becomes inseparable from the historical circumstances in which he said it. The stories in Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers provide the particulars of that context. Thus, the Torah is never reduced to a universal theory. It is pertinent to all of history precisely because it first touches on a particular part of history. The text is ever contextualized in space and time. Now, that's so important to the that's so important the understanding of the Bible at all. Notice the New Testament follows the same format. You start by history. Four gospels, actually apostles. Then so if you want to study the study the epistles of Paul, I think the best way to do it is, is start with the book of Acts, because although Acts reflects a, a significantly different the theology, it does give you the outline in which Paul wrote those epistles. You probably took all this at UC, didn't you, in the old days? Long time ago. If I faint, fall over here, Julie will take over for me. Okay. Yes, sir. a certain conflict that was occurring between the, uh, the other Jewish 
Oh, we must not do that. We'll do that in some other context. This would take us way away from. Yeah, I'm just trying to ask with the, uh, just wanted to kind of know a certain perspective to look at Paul on how to see, you said to look through the Acts to understand Paul's perspective. No, to get, give the historical outline. No, I think the perspective in Acts is very different from that of Paul. Yeah, that, Acts has got a significantly different theology. Okay. But I don't, want, I don't want to stray off in that way. If I went that way, buddy, I'd never get back to the Revelation. I'm, I've already gone from Revelation to Amos. <laughs> you know, which is perhaps not a normal way of going about it. Yes, sir? Yes, that's, 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 all, that's all correct, yeah. The epistles, the epistles were actually written earlier than any of these works. But notice that the, 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 the impulse is to put the historical, the historical things first. That's, that's a Jewish impulse. Get the history established first. Oh, but they were living that history. We have to learn it. Yeah, good point, yeah. In varying degrees, the same principle is characteristic of all the biblical prophetic books. Most of the prophetic books of Scripture tell us when the, when the prophet spoke. Okay. Thus we learn that Isaiah was called what year? In the year King Uzziah died. You knew that, didn't you really? I said it. Uh, oh, did you? I only whispered it. Only whispered it? Okay. Because <laughs> she thought it might be a trick question. <laughs> See, I, I made my mistake by telling him it's a trick question. <laughs> uh, in the year the king Uzziah died. Okay. Which was what year? Louder, louder. I heard it. Go ahead. 742. Who said 742? Thank you, Nancy. I heard it because I heard it. Okay. And that long history of Isaiah lasted through according to chapter 1, verse 1, the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Similarly, at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, we are informed that he prophesied in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. Pins it down. Ezekiel likewise tells us that he received his inaugural vision in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. Haggai begins his message in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month on the second on the first day of the month. Two months later, Zechariah commences his prophecy in the eighth month of the second year of King Darius. They give it to you, give you the history of the thing. Okay. And that's probably you know why we don't know much about the Bible? Don't know much about history. That's the reason we don't understand the Bible. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in. It's not in my notes to throw this. Even me, I wouldn't know. Oh, Sam Clark. <laughs> what was it? Okay. Sam Clark. Okay. Over and over again, the Bible's prophetic books, whether explicitly or by implication, set the oracles of God into specific, specified rather, historical contexts, contexts that indicate how we are to interpret and understand them. To repeat, biblical prophecy is not universal except by being particular. It has not become timeless except by being timely. 
Now, this feature is true of prophecy because it is true of salvation. Jesus is the Savior of the world because, and you recited this this morning, he suffered when? Under Pontius Pilate. That puts it right into history. The most significant, the only salvific event in all of human history is linked to a particular moment of history, explicitly documented, and not sacred history, (coughs) secular history, Roman history. Christian salvation does not consist in finding a universal religious truth outside of time, but in discovering the particular place where eternity entered time, namely, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the beginning of the gospel takes place, St. Luke tells us. When? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. I mean, what a, there it is. 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea in the region of Trachonitis. And Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. You think maybe that's one of the most solemn things in the Bible. You know, it lists it lists how you can research it, yeah. With respect to the Bible's prophetic books, from the beginning this truth has served as a hermeneutic principle for the correct interpretation. It's a sound principle, I submit, indicated by the Bible itself. And this is why I've been insisting that the book of Revelation, book of Revelation, sorry, is a prophetic book. It needs to be treated the same way we treat the other prophetic books. Now, to understand the book of Revelation, I sometimes, by the way, just by force of habit, I will refer to the apocalypse. I think I was, I think I was in my twenties before I ever, ever referred to it as the book of Revelation. When I was a kid, we called it the apocalypse. But I found some of my friends had no idea what I was talking about because I was talking Greek. But that's what we called it when I was young, the apocalypse. It's imperative to under, understand how it was understood by those who've read it and heard it read. If our own understanding is to be valid, it must be related to that original understanding of the first Christian readers. See, because the God who inspires the prophet to write also inspires the hearer to listen and understand. This is the same rule we employ for other books of the New Testament. We would not think of interpreting the epistles of Galatians and Corinthians without regard to the immediate context of those two churches. In fact, I guess I've lived a, I guess I've lived a spoiled existence. I've never heard it done. I've never heard anybody, anybody my whole life ever preach on the book of, 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 say, the Corinthian epistles without making some reference to what was going on in Corinth. Now, I presume there are people who do it that way, but I've never heard of them. To attempt such a thing, it would do violence to the epistles themselves. The same is true of the book of Revelation. Now, let me suggest that this approach to the book of Revelation enjoys an advantage the advantage of avoiding a lot of exegetical nonsense. 
one of the people I love the most in this world, and with whom I was raised, when we get together, at, at least until recent times, he's always brought up the book of Revelation, and because he knows it really grates on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> he came he came to visit us recently and I had my shillelagh back behind the door but I never had to bring it back I never had to bring it out <laughs> but I have, I, have be, I have very vivid memories of decades ago when he was trying to explain to me that the plague of locusts in the book of Revelation was related to these helicopters that were flying over in Vietnam and he was dead serious Somehow helicopters look something like locusts, I guess, and, that, and that's what John meant. Okay. It's quite possible that John meant that, okay. but I think it's very unlikely. I would want to. I want to say. I want to ask the people who heard her John read, the people in the churches of Ephesus and Pergamum and so forth. Do you think he's referring to helicopters? What are helicopters? You know, <laughs> Russians. Russians. That's exactly it. Russians. Gog and Magog were Russia and China. It's a wonder. It's wonder with that kind of exegesis we ever avoided a world, another world war. The early Christians at Theatira in Philadelphia would never have preserved a work they did not understand. If they thought John was talking about helicopters, they certainly would have had him committed. Yes, Chris. <laughs> Maybe, maybe if you'll let me get through the first lecture. I, I was just hoping. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, you don't. We got a long way to go, Chris. You just be patient. I'll get those stupid helicopters in there some way. <laughs> It is not as though those early Christians on reading the book of Revelation for the first time sat around scratching their heads in vain, completely stymied by what it meant. We should not think of the believers at Sardis and Pergamon as saying something like, well, we can't make heads or tails of any of this. I mean, who can figure out this 666 business and explain the thousand-year reign of the saints? Good grief, the last thing we needed was a complex riddles. It has nothing to do with our lives. Why has our beloved John suddenly gone off the deep end speaking in riddles? We haven't the foggiest idea what any of this stuff means. John sounds like he's on drugs. What are they doing to him over in prison on the Isle of Patmos? However, just to be safe, let's keep copies of this stuff around and hoping somebody someday will be able to understand it. Who knows? There may be somebody able to figure out this puzzle over the next 2,000 years, and we'll find out what those locusts means if anybody ever invents something called a helicopter. <laughs> Perhaps the 21st century or so, when world history really does go to seed, some truly wise person will sit down and write a commentary to explain it all. Heaven knows we have no idea what it means. Now, this portrait you recognize to be absurd. 
and I'm being deliberately absurd. I do that more often than you seem to realize. <laughs> you're afraid, you're afraid, maybe this time be serious. By and large, we must presume that the faithful at Ephesus, Smyrna, and Laodicea had some idea what John was talking about when he described his various visions. If we want to understand what the book of Revelation means, therefore, it is imperative that we begin by investigators investigating what his first readers thought that it meant. The Bible's first readers must be our guides to understanding of it. The same interpretive principle um, pertains to all the prophetic books of the Bible. I'm going to start this paragraph. I won't finish it, but I want to, I want to get just a wee bit into it. Indeed, what you note in the book of Revelation is the absence of any long-term vision. Completely absent. There's not the slightest indication that the prophet is using a, a telescope for the distant future. Over and over again, he says, the things that must take place shortly, hadeg and esthai and taki, things that are going to happen immediately, soon. Brace yourself now. John's readers certainly did not think the events predicted in this book would come to pass centuries in the future. There's no indication of that. In fact, just the opposite. They pertain rather to the here and now in their own time. The same expression, things that must shortly take place. Ha de Ganeste and Taki is found again near the end of the book. In John's visions, the perceived time is not far off. He tells us the time is near. Hogar Kairos Engis. The same theme comes out again at the end of the book. Hol Kairos Gar Engis Din. The time is near. There's, there's an immediacy in, John, in uh, the book of Revelation. In fact, that immediate contact in the book of Revelation is not terribly hard to detect. The seven letters to the seven churches of Asia in chapters 2 and 3 show that the book is essentially a prophetic call and what do the prophets always call us to? Always. You said it, say it again. Repentance. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance in the faith in the face of an impending and expected persecution of Christians by elements of the Roman state. The ensuing chapters describe his coming persecution in a series of scenes arranged according to the number seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of plagues. Each scene of each section in this series appears to describe exactly what is described in the corresponding scenes in the other sections. All of these scenes represent what? A summons to repentance. Thus, the book of Revelation is a long prophecy in the sense of a repeated warning. It's a practical book. Practical book. It's supposed to call us to repentance. And that will be the approach I take to the book of Revelation, but 
I have finished, my goodness, eight pages of 15 that I ran off yesterday. This introduction is more than 50 pages before I get to chapter 1, verse 1. Can you hang on, Chris? <laughs> it's important that you do, buddy. <laughs> Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. 